0: The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances, leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On this episode, I continue my discussion on the use of psychedelic drugs for the treatment of mental illness with Dr. Lynette Averill from Baylor College of Medicine. We pick up our conversation as Dr. Averill goes into more detail about the drugs, issues surrounding their use. And how the treatment is performed. Where are we at in terms of where the therapies are right now, and how people are being treated, and how successful they've been?
1: So, right now, again, for MDMA and psilocybin, I think the results have been, I would say, overwhelmingly positive. You know, the, the clinical trials have generally been very positive. MDMA again for for post traumatic stress, and psilocybin for depression. And I'm I'm really focusing the psilocybin discussion on depression, because that's where the FDA approval is heading. Though, again, there's really important and I think really exciting research happening outside of depression as well. For MDMA, you know, uh, well, I guess for both, the, the results suggest that people experience very rapid and very robust improvements in symptoms. And you know, sometimes I think there's certainly conversations in, in the field that, you know, these, some of these have been smaller studies. Some of these have not been well controlled studies. You know, clinical trials often are RCTs, randomized controlled trials, placebo controlled trials. And, and a really interesting challenge with psychedelic medicine is the way the medicines work, the, the experience of the medicines is incredibly intense. And produces symptoms that we cannot mimic with a non-active drug. And what I mean by that is that the, the symptoms of taking psilocybin, of taking M- MDMA, even if taking something like ketamine, you know, that is, is much less intense in terms of the experiential component, is that it's wildly obvious if you have gotten the active drug or if you have gotten a sugar pill you know it it's just wildly obvious, so that has been one of the one of the aspects you know that people some some investigators and and others have sort of pushed back on is well, how do we know that it's the medicines because you know we, we can 't control them, and I think that raises the question both of that that may be Part of the therapeutic benefit that these interventions are very intensive, very profound, very rapid acting, and very unique, that we're not just giving, you know, giving yet another SSRI or yet another thing that is slow acting, that takes, you know, weeks to months to provide clinical benefit. But that with these medicines, generally within a number of hours to number of days, people are reporting significant shifts in symptoms, significant improvements in symptoms. It's not simply that, yes, these 10 items on the depression rating scale or the post-traumatic distress disorder checklist have decreased. But that people also are feeling more themselves again, if you will, that they're finding that connection or reconnection, they're finding that meaning and purpose. For many people, you know, they will talk about, especially with psilocybin and, and some of these other drugs, not necessarily so much MVMA, though though some people, you know, still will talk about this a bit. There's something incredibly important and meaningful about the mystical experience, about the spiritual experience, about you know, this sort of 30,000 foot view of their life, of their experiences, which in research and in clinical, you know, kind of clinical anecdotes, both from controlled clinical trials, as well as from people who are using these, you know, outside the country and, and sometimes inside the country in underground manners, that people say that an experience with psychedelic medicine is one of the most meaningful experiences of their life. And I can tell you, I have never heard anyone say that about SSRIs. Taking Zoloft, I have never heard someone say is among the most meaningful experience of their life. In terms of where we are with research, MDMA is moving forward with FDA approval for PTSD specifically. We are starting to see some research studies that are, you know, kind of exploring, which I think we'll see a lot more of, kind of MDMA not only as a standalone for PTSD and and MDMA. I should clarify for all of these that that these interventions are not only the medication; that that the psychotherapy part is just as critical. That that I think they view these as. The psychedelic medicine really enhancing the psychotherapy and being a really, really critical component of the psychotherapy, and I think that that's a, a very vital piece to stress for you know f- for anyone listening and for anyone interested in these is that taking the medicine as a standalone, taking the medicine in a vacuum i would say is wildly discouraged and and perhaps very dangerous and the reason that i say that is that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the therapy whether that is you know again in the context of a clinical trial or in the context of leaving the country going to a retreat working with a shaman working in the underground with providers having appropriate support having on before the medicine Carefully setting intentions, making sure that you're safe to engage in the intervention, making sure that you've kind of considered what it is you, you want from the intervention, why are you seeking this out at all? You know, just, just as I think we should do for any sort of healthcare intervention. Why do I need this? Why do I think I need this? Why am I seeking this out? What would change for me if this worked? But also importantly, you know, none of, none of these are a golden bullet. None of these are a panacea. They will not work for everyone. They are not safe and appropriate for everyone. So also, what if this doesn't work for me? Then what? Or what if I'm not appropriate or safe to take this? Then what? But then on the other side, working through and really processing and and integrating whatever things come up. Because again, these are very rapid acting, very intense, for many people, very challenging experiences. You know, if we think about what it means to be treatment resistant in terms of mental health care. This means individuals have been struggling with significant depression, post-traumatic stress, suicidality, addiction, any of these things, often for years, not finding benefit. That is incredibly challenging, incredibly exhausting, incredibly demoralizing. And to have all of that come up, all of that come to the surface very quickly, I have heard people talk about these experiences as having surgery without an anesthetic, as having six months of intensive trauma treatment and a weekend, you know, that, that these are not easy experiences. And if you don't have appropriate support to both in the moment kind of help ground you, remind you that you're safe, make sure that you are in fact safe, you know, from a cardiovascular perspective or other things. But then also kind of help you talk through what things did come up, what are the things that are going to be valuable to talk through and process. You know, I I think those those kinds of experiences where people do not have that support are generally where we hear the stories of of negative experiences of, you know, quote unquote, bad trips and that that piece is critical. I think we will will start seeing a lot more research though that, that really look at the therapy component, kind of looking at dosing, if you will, you know, certainly with an MDMA, there's a couple of studies happening now looking at the the efficacy between two and three dosing sessions. and also an investigator in Oregon is looking at MDMA in a group format. There's also um, a group, I think in I want to say San Diego perhaps, who's going to, Be looking at couples, which MDMA previously, you know, was used in couples, but giving the medication to to both members of a couple. And and I think, you know, that that we'll continue to see an explosion of research even after FDA approval, both looking at how these work for other indications. You know, certainly for me, I'm very interested specifically in the anti-suicidal effects of these medications and, and interventions. But I think also, you know, again, I don't think we'll ever find the golden bullet, the one size fits all. So kind of considering how do we best stack these, if you will, how do we determine, you know, maybe would some people have better benefit if we gave ketamine and then MDMA MDMA, or if if we give psilocybin, but then somebody can have consistent benefit with an SSRI, you know, these kinds of questions we really have not answered yet. And I think there's a lot of interest also in, in you know, to an earlier question, uh, you know, about sort of what some of the roadblocks are in terms of pushing these out. The, the way that these interventions are set up absolutely represent a paradigm shift in the way that we think about what mental health care looks like. You know, in most settings, a psychiatrist often is going to see a patient for 30 minutes on the absolute maximum. You know, a lot of times, psychiatrists are doing med checks in 15-minute sections, just in, out, in, out, you know, mostly, how are you, how are your meds? Okay, see you in a month. And psychologists, social workers, MFTs, everybody else is often seeing patients you know, 45, 50 minute sessions maximum, if not doing, you know, seeing multiple people in a group setting. These interventions as they are put forth to the FDA right now have at least one, if not more pre-dosing sessions, often with two providers, at least an hour to talk about the intentions to kind of prepare for the sessions. The dosing days are very long, six to eight hours, because these are very long acting drugs. So six to eight hours, where again, you generally are going to have two providers in the room. And then you have at least one, if not more, of what are called kind of the integration sessions, again, with two providers. So I think on the side of, of humanism, I think it is not surprising that we see really remarkable effects from these in a short amount of time. You have an incredibly powerful medicine that works, you know, it, again, works in the brain very rapidly, very robustly. And you also have a lot of intensive time with providers. And certainly from the, you know, the, the healthcare system perspective and And the capitalist perspective, which conversation for another day also, that's really hard. It's really hard to integrate something like that into our healthcare system as it exists.
0: Well, Um, and I I would assume that that's going to be one of those barrier issues because is insurance going to cover this and are they going to cover for two providers? Because now you're talking about adding cost and I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just, you know, thinking from a perspective of look how long it took us to get the insurance providers to approve buprenorphine for opioid use disorder and methadone. And that was one of the big barriers in people being able to access treatment. So now you're talking about adding, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, I, I actually think you should. I think the problem of course is, how do we get this funded and absolutely. what's the cost going to be?
1: Yeah. And you're absolutely right. And that's one of the conversations, you know, that that Sean and I and, and others have all the time is how do we effectively roll these out as, as individual States, as the federal government, how do we effectively roll out these interventions in a way that, Stresses and promotes access and equity, because we we cannot roll out these interventions. You know that only the top one percent and those with the best insurance coverage in the country can access. And and it's not easy questions to answer. You know it's definitely not easy questions to answer. But that is one of one of the primary things. You know how do we train enough providers to support this effort? And how do we pay for it? How do we pay for it?
0: Yeah. And that's a real, you know, you know, so there's a couple of things that I would add to that because I actually have two friends that suffered PTSD and have a myriad of health related issues as well as mental health issues as a result of two very traumatic events. Uh, One was a, a good friend of mine who has suffered with PTSD probably his entire life since I've known him and I've known him for 35 years he was actually held hostage in the Capitol Hill riots in Harrisburg uh, I want to say 1988 89 and he never really fully recovered from that and so hasn't had the benefit of having these types of therapies so for me I see a, a potential benefit for him or at least wanting to get him that that, that sort of information Then I have another friend who was actually shot on the job doing an undercover operation and has suffered PTSD as well as a myriad of health issues too. And, but of course the, you know, I'm talking about two law enforcement guys who have spent their entire lives combating illicit drug use. So having them even come to the table on this is problematic too, because while they want relief and they want help. They also spent their lives arresting people for illegal use of magic mushrooms, peddling MDMA, those sort of things. So you know it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, or, I, I definitely hope. I, I'm really hopeful. Um, you know, to your to your comment of folks in law enforcement, I, I'm really hopeful that you can chat with you know with, with the detective. He's he's just an incredible human being. But you know, we we've talked about that as well. That that to have that shift from Exactly as you say, being, being the person who, who is arresting and, you know, arresting others and, and fighting against that to then be, be the person who turns to what is currently illicit drug use to save their life is, is something to grapple with. Absolutely.
0: I want to thank Dr. Averill for sharing her knowledge on this subject. On our next episode, we continue our series on the use of psychedelic drugs in mental health with Andrew Marr, military veteran and former Green Beret, who has personally used these therapies and how they have made a positive impact on his life and so many others. I hope you'll join us. The Executive Board of NASCA and the Education Committee would like to thank you for joining us. Music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's NASCA.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.